Thank you, Anna. It's <laughs> good. It's good. Please uh, join with me as we hear together God's word to us this morning. This is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are owners and of all property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you already. Um, it is a tremendous privilege to be uh, the speaker when already so many people have said things far, far more powerful. Um, to have um, Anna share, to have uh, my own pastor of my church, Raph, <laughs> pray. Um, it really is a privilege to be here. Um, the subject is a weighty one. And the title of this sermon is the unprejudiced spirit and justified equality. Let's go back in time. The year is 1591. In Scotland, a woman named Euphraine McLean is pregnant with twins. She goes into labor. The labor is difficult physically and emotionally taxing. It is painful. So painful she cries out for relief. And the midwives bring to her a very strong pain relief drug. She delivers her babies. This might seem like a reasonable thing, but in the 16th century, it was illegal to use pain medication in childbirth. Why? Um, the ecclesial authorities learned this crime and bring this young woman, still recuperating from birth, before a tribunal. Her crime? Trying to lessen God's curse on women. God mandated in Genesis 3, in their reckoning, that women, due to their sin of eating the fruit should suffer during childbirth. And how dare Euphraine McLean be so obsessed with her bodily autonomy that she would absolve herself of God's curse on their gender. 
The church tribunal found her guilty and her punishment was no mere parking ticket. She was burned at the stake. Let that sink in for a second. Genesis 3, the woman's pain in childbirth is increased as a sign of the fallenness of existence. And the church in the 1600s deemed it their duty to enforce the curse. Instead of it being their pleasure to undo it. One would think that that would be our pleasure. Notice also in Genesis 3 that the result of a man, the man and the woman choosing to go against God, turning in blame towards one another, our lives as gendered individuals is marred by competition. Your desire will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. The companionship of the one flesh of Genesis 2 is torn asunder by the barriers of sin. Rather than mutuality, hierarchy. Rather than reciprocity, domination. Sadly, so many churches today feel it is their duty, much like the church in Euphrane McLean's day, to enforce the curse. Setting up barriers to women in ministry, refusing to recognize women in leadership, rather in the home, or in church, or in business, or in educational institutions. The year is 1860. America stands on the brink of civil war between North and South, largely over the issue of slavery. The Baptist Convention, for those who are listening in Dr. Maxwell's class, has already broken asunder. The North barred the South from owning, uh, from slave-owning candidates for missionary work. Southern Baptist preachers defend their right to own slaves because it's biblical. Moreover, the right to own black slaves because blacks are dark-skinned and therefore they are under the curse of Ham. Once again, the church feels it's their obligation to enforce the curse rather than undo it. The North, led by Baptists like Francis Wayland, argue that scripture must be read through one's conscience and deems it unconscionable that a human being can own another human being. The South saw this as liberalism. Slavery was biblical, and that settled it for them. The South, as history shows, loses the Civil War, and the the slaves are freed. And in the wake of this defeat, Southern leaders flow into the ranks of the KKK, and by night carry out brutal intimidation and lynchings, an estimated 5,000 lynchings happened in the following decades. We like to highbrow our American neighbors, but Halifax tells of its own injustices, as I learned. In 1960, the inhabitants of Africville had their homes and their church bulldozed to make way for the McKay Bridge to be built. In the name of economic progress, the marginalized homes, their lands will always be a reasonable price. I need to put this on the other side since I'm right-handed. The year is 2020. I drive in this morning listening to the news. I hear of the fight of the Wet'suwet'en over whether a pipeline should go on their land. If the Wet'suwet'en are white, I wonder, would we be so eager to ignore their claims, to silence their voices, to speak for them, to speak without them? This dismissive mentality of many Canadians reflects the old habit of the colonizer, who came empowered by the doctrine of discovery that if explorers found land not governed by Christian lords, it was their duty and right to take it over and absorb it into Christendom. It was their duty to re-enculture natives into Christian culture. 
The tragic folly of this is shown in the 6,000 children that died in the squalor and the abuse of the residential school system. I want to tell you that these things were perpetrated by godless people. I want to tell you that these were perpetrated by people who didn't know their Bibles. But the fact is far more sobering. It was done by people who could chapter and verse their injustice. The truth makes this message all the more urgent today. It makes the work of your studies, of this college, of your future ministries, of work like organizations like ASBE, of the sacred fellowship we have here in this room, why it is all the more necessary in this world. The Bible must be read through the eyes of equality, enlightened by the Spirit. And this is our task that we're going to think about today. So my first point is, we must word, read the Word of God through the wind of God. Now this is a sermon that can't stand alone. No sermon should. So many well-intended Christians will quote texts to close down equality. I'm sure you can all think of some. I can't treat them all here, but I'd like to suggest there are probably very strong reasons that they're being quoted out of context. I would like to impress upon you the necessity of reading the Word of God with the wind of God. Read Scripture through the Spirit. For as Paul says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If we read the Word of God without the wind of God, words spoken without breath will be nothing but a faint whisper in this world. As William Newton Clark, one of the first modern Baptists, said, uh, who considered biblical equality for women's ordination, in his profound little memoir, 60 Years of the Bible, at first I said, the scriptures limit me. Later I said, the scriptures open my way to this. I would impress this sensibility upon you today. It was the spirit that opened up Paul. First in Damascus, but then in Galatia. As the early church expanded beyond Judea, the apostles saw the spirit's reach exceed their grasp, pushing them forward, disturbing, unsettling, sending them out. In Galatia, we see the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ and wanting to be a part of existing communities that were Jewish Christians. This created a problem. If Gentiles want to be a part of the people of God, a group called the Judaizers said, you have to become Jewish. How do you become Jewish? By submitting yourself totally to the law, which begins in its epitome, circumcision. As Marcus Bart points out, circumcision becomes the church's first race issue. Why? Because this religious command creates a racial barrier. Jews circumcised, therefore clean. Gentiles uncircumcised, therefore unclean. One allowed in, the other not. So how did the Spirit open up Paul? He realized that the Spirit is without prejudice. Because the Spirit is without prejudice, we are justified by faith. He says, do you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Did you do something to make God love you? Or does God love you and you just simply need to trust it? Gentiles who were not circumcised, who did not set out to live all 613 some odd commands of the OT, uh, did not become circumcised to become Jews, nevertheless had the Spirit come upon them. Now one should note, Paul is not having a problem with obeying God here. 
people forget that Paul actually tells Timothy to get circumcised in order to have a better ministry amongst Jews. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, We know that the law is good if it is used appropriately. Obedience is not the problem. Using the Bible to justify inequality is. If you are obeying the letter of the law in such a way as to delude yourself as to say, why God favors you, why you are better than others, why this reinforces your privilege against another, you are making the law doing, do it was something it was never intended to do. And that is what the Judaizers were doing. Paul responds, no one is justified before God by the law. The just will live by faith. And he's quoting the Old Testament here. That's how the law understood itself as a disciplinarian. It's meant to get us deeper into trusting God's mercy, trusting Christ, trusting what his spirit is doing amongst us. That is what qualifies us to be here. That is what qualifies us to be God's people. That is what makes us children of God. That is what makes you a child of God. And don't let anybody tell you differently. And so if that being the case, Paul does something profound. Just as Jesus transgressed the letter of the law to fulfill its spirit, Paul says, if that's how you're going to use circumcision, it's done. It's done. We fail to appreciate just how radical this is. Dedrick Bonhoeffer once said, the Pauline question, whether circumcision is a condition of justification, seems to me, in the present day terms, to be whether religion is a condition of salvation. That's how revolutionary Paul is for his day. Circumcision is considered an eternal ordinance in Genesis. But it got in the way of knowing Jesus. It got in the way of God's love. It got in the way of what the Spirit was doing. And so for Paul, the circumcision didn't make the cut. No pun intended. <laughs> pun very intended there. Who am I kidding? I've got to own that one. They love that one. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's draw it back in here. Notice what Paul is doing here. He is calling into question the very heart of his Jewish faith in, in the name of what Jesus is doing. Are we willing to call into question the very heart of our religion, whatever we call it, to, to keep doing what Jesus is doing among us? Can we ask, us, our, ask ourselves this today? My third point. Because we are justified by the unprejudiced spirit, we must remove all barriers to, inequality, uh, uh, to equality. Let me unpack this. At the apex of this epistle of Galatians, he offers this powerful manifesto. There is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Interpreters like Martin Luther, all the way to the modern age, Ronald Fung, a prevalent commentator, have all made the statement that this manifesto only pertains to spiritual equality. This means in faith, slaves and free people are spiritually equal, spiritually equal despite one owning the other. For men and women, they're spiritually equal despite women being subordinate to men. In other words, the barriers to equality in our bodies don't matter. So they argue. What I'd like to say, in other words, dualism. This does not take into account the bodily nature of circumcision, 
If you don't feel like circumcision has something to do with bodily equality, men, you just have to ask yourself, if you came to a church, and it said in their bulletin, if you want to be, you know where I'm going with this, yeah. it said in the bulletin, if you want to be a member of this church, you have to be circumcised. Would you feel welcomed? Would you feel the equals of this church? The issue of equality is a bodily matter. It, and that's what it was here. Women's equality, racial equality, economic equality, they're all very different. And they need to be addressed in different ways. But Paul sees them as all connected. Why? Because we are all human. We did not choose the skin we are in. I have no control over the circumstances of my birth, and neither do you. I could have been born differently. I could have been born female and go through all the things that females go through. I could have been born indigenous or black. I could have been born in a country ravaged by corruption. My parents had to flee to another with me. I could have been born with a developmental disability. I could have been born with a severe mental illness. Let me push you further. I could have been born with XXY chromosome syndrome and fallen outside of the gender binary, or a testosterone deficiency that would make me bodily female but chromosomally male. That is a very rare occurrence. But since I didn't choose the skin that I'm in, it could have been me. If that is the case, the social barriers out there today, the stereotypes, the unwelcoming churches, we all have to ask ourselves, if this could have been me, since I didn't choose my birth, how would I want to be treated? Equality must be our guiding principle, and empathy and conscience must, must guide our interpretation. Why? Because it gets at the heart of why the whole law is summarized in one command for Paul. Later in Galatians, love your neighbor as yourself. Jews and Gentiles are equal in Christ. Bodily differences matter. If we don't look to those, as Desmond Tutu once said, if I diminish you, I am diminishing myself because I could have been you. We're a lot more alike than we are different. The challenge, some see bodily differences as the cause to uphold barriers. But in scripture, the challenge of bodily differences necessitates physical equality. Jews and Gentiles are equal in Christ, therefore the physical restriction of circumcision driving the two apart was removed in the name of what the Spirit was doing. In Galatians, the act of the Spirit is without prejudice in bestowing the gift of salvation. Notice here that by it we cry out, Abba, Father. Notice how in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lists this very same manifesto for the gifts of salvation. I have it on PowerPoint. For in one spirit you are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of the one spirit. It's the same language as Galatians 3. Then he says what these, this spirit's gifts are. God has, made, has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets and teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Apostleship is on that list. Leadership is on that list. If the Spirit is without prejudice in bestowing the gift of salvation, the Spirit is without prejudice in giving the gifts of salvation. 
Equality of the gift and gifts are part and parcel with the logic of justification by faith itself. You can't have one without the other. Because we trust that the Spirit has brought us Gentiles into the people of God, we can't help but trust the same Spirit who calls people, regardless of race, uh, gender, or status, to lead his church. You can't have equality without justification, and you can't have justification without equality. Gift and gifts are one as God's body in Jesus Christ was meant to be one. It would be a gross error in judgment to look at Paul working within a society with slavery and think that he's not trying to subvert slavery. It would be a gross error in judgment to see that Paul, since he's working in a, in a culture that viewed women as property and subordinate, that his writings are not trying to gently subvert this either. The church has not noticed this insight well. But the spirit is without prejudice, and we are justified in our equality. And that leads me to my last point. The cost of equality is worth it. The cost of equality is worth it. Ten years ago, I was pastoring in a different Baptist denomination, founded in part by its rejection of women in ministry. I found myself in seminary a zealous person to this cause. Some people call complementarianism against women in ministry. My first year of Bible college, I will confess, I wrote a paper about why one of my professors who confessed, uh, who was for women in ministry, Dr. Bill Webb, should be fired for his liberalism. Don't ever write a paper about why a professor should be fired. (laughs) My professor of that particular class graciously asked me to rewrite the paper. (laughs) Graciously. (laughs) Then I had to take Dr. Webb's hermeneutics course. And I rifled that poor man with scripture after scripture and question after question. And if you've ever gotten to know Bill, you will know a person of such gentleness, brilliance, and articulate wisdom that he just worked through each scripture patiently with me. And I found myself moved and convinced. That is good advice for all of us as we have these difficult conversations. Will you be patient even if somebody's not patient with you? Mm. Know your scriptures. Know them well. Mm. Bill was eventually let go for holding these convictions. Mm. It was a very difficult time at that seminary. When this happened, I knew that it would have consequences for me as I began to pastor. And as I sat down to the leadership of the association that I was a part of to discuss a church plant that I was putting together for the next town over, talk of ministry became talk of doctrine. And they wanted to know whether or not I was in or whether or not I was out. I could have remained silent. My firstborn, Rowan, had just been born. I was doing full-time doctoral studies. I was also working 10 hours a week as a TA. I was working 10 hours a week as a soup kitchen coordinator. I was also working 20 hours a week as a church planting intern. Do the math there. It was quite a lot. Megan had just gone back to school on her mat leave to upgrade her teaching degree, and she was lifeguarding in the evenings, and we were barely scraping by. I could have stayed silent. I knew that I couldn't. I would not be able to live with myself if I denied my conscience and my convictions. 
The association leader gave me an ultimatum then. Shut up and tow the party line uh, or have your funding cut. I pleaded with this man several hours over coffee. I said to him, why can't something like the Trinity, who God is, unify this denomination rather than the, the matters of ministry? He turned to me and he said, and I had to write this down because I didn't believe the words at first hearing. No, Spencer, gender roles is more important to the gospel than the Trinity. For him, practically, it was right. I got home that night and I told Megan that I would have to fire up my resume and leave the denominational family my grandfather, Fritz Borsma, was a founding pastor of. For do I sent out dozens of resumes I think upwards to 50, and no callbacks, and no church wanted to take in and hire a doctoral student. Finally, First Baptist Church of Sudbury called. In hindsight, this is a small cost compared to the women I know who have studied at Bible college, at that Bible college, and would realize no church would ever even take a look at them, no matter how talented or passionate or godly they were. Just before chapel, I got a message from a female pastor wishing me good luck because she's about to go before her church and explain to them why they should hire her as a woman. I realize as a man, I will never have to do that. And that is maybe why I'm here all the more. I had a wonderful experience pastoring a church that long supported women in ministry, cultivating a thoughtful and open-minded open Community, But I can tell you, while our denomination and our congregations might support equality in principle, it's a long way to go in practice. Whether it is women's ordination, or reciprocity in marriage, or racial justice, indigenous reconciliation, hospitality towards refugees, dignity rather than disgust towards sexual minorities, how to treat somebody in poverty with all the dignity somebody in God's image deserves, each one of these were weekly struggles in pastoring. With every new face around the church came the question of what toxic, half-baked, YouTube-searched theology would they be bringing with them. Many, I found, had built their whole faiths on staying safe. Because there is that option in pastoring and in preaching, when you know a sermon illustration that a text calls for, will push important members of a church that are set in their ways, and each month you see the budget of that church hanging on for dear life. It is easy not to talk about these things, to offer people an anemic, spiritualized gospel. I was pleased and humbled to have First Baptist Church grow well in five years that I was there, but it also came with sermon after sermon of so-and-so wasn't there the next week all to find that they didn't like being pushed on these issues and eventually moved on to another church in town. I also found in pastoring that many women were opposed to equality just as much as men were. For some, the notion of being restricted meant that they wouldn't have to be responsible. They wouldn't have to worry. The idea that, men, uh, that God might call them to something more risky and vulnerable and messy, in subordination, there was safety. After all, Israel wanted to go back to Egypt, didn't it? 
Proclaiming God's word will always cost us. It will cost us in a culture that is fractured into tribes of self-interest. It will cost us pastors even more as we pastor churches that have, always, that have created cultures that cater. I worry that there are many who will ignore this conversation on equality, let alone their duty to uphold it. From a worldly perspective, why should I, as a Western, English-speaking, white, straight male, give up something for people I don't know? One might say, white privilege? Life is hard for me too, you know. (laughs) But if freedom is the point of rights, giving up my freedom for another's rights is pointless, I think. It's a legitimate question, why bother doing it? But for Paul, this is not his line of reasoning, and it can't be ours either. His equality is founded on the God who took on our flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, a God who gave up freedom so that we could be free. We are equal because the barrier between heaven and earth was broken, because the king became a slave, the holy one took on our curse, the blessed one took on our cross, because the righteous one became sin, because the first became last, so that there is no barrier between God and sinner in his very body, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God. And because of this, we are one, and we are free, and we are saved, and we are blessed, and we are counted as God's people, God's very children, inheritors of the kingdom of heaven itself. Living this is our equality. God bore the cross so that we can be free, and now we can bear our crosses to allow others to know this freedom. That is the equality that we are called to. Equality will cost us, but I also know there's so much more to be gained. When we see churches that embrace all the giftings of the Spirit, regardless of race and gender and status, this is when the kingdom of God shines through the body of Christ all the clearer. Because the kingdom is Paul's equality, he is able to say, I will endure hardship, hunger, persecution, peril, the sword, all to make this possible for another, especially those this world has forgotten. For him, living is for Christ, and to die is gain. So brothers and sisters, may we die to self today and take up the newness of Christ now and hereafter. Let's pray. Given the topic of the sermon, I'm going to uh, go against the normative sort of template of praying to the Father in the name of Jesus um, and pray directly to the Spirit that Revelation calls us to call on. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ addressing us now, Sophia, wisdom of the Father before all creation. You hover over the depths of our soul with the creativity that formed heaven and earth. In you we live and move and have our being. We sense you in our midst. We feel you groan with a sighs too deep for words over the state of our broken world. Forgive us for neglecting you. You are the spirit of love, of joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You make the equality and freedom we seek possible. Forgive us for the ways we've refused to see the image of God in another. Be with the marginalized of this world and give us the eyes to see and ears to hear them. Be with our female pastors who face barriers our male pastors do not. Be with our pastors that work for racial equality and indigenous reconciliation and care for those in poverty. Call us all to this beautiful work of making equality possible, even if it costs us. No cost compares to the riches of your kingdom. We thank you that your love, by it we are justified. We cry out to Abba Father through you. Teach us anew to read scripture by your refreshing breath. Breathe upon us the fire of Pentecost to speak your gospel to the cacophony of this world. But remind us that that same gentle presence that we sense here as we sing is the very power that raised our Savior Jesus Christ from the grave, and may we never forget it. By you one day the earth will be filled by the glory of God as water over the sea. By you every knee will bow and tongue confess Christ as Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. By you, God in Trinity, you will be all in all. Come, Holy Spirit, come. We thirst for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.